Brother, we come tonight to Revelation 10. And just a quick reminder that we're right in the middle of the seven trumpets. Remember, the book of Revelation is divided into seven cycles. And the fourth cycle that we're a part of now is chapters 8 to 11. And also, having seen last week, or perhaps, and thus, having seen last week, the sixth angel, we don't come yet to the seventh angel and his trumpet until the middle part of chapter 11. So all of chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11 are a break between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Now, if you remember back a few chapters ago, we saw that there was also the break between the sixth and seventh seals. And we said that we can either attach this break to the sixth seal or trumpet, or I'll just say that it's a break between the two seals and trumpets. But either way, keep in mind that the events recorded in chapter 10 and 11, as were the events of the previous chapters, all happen simultaneous, one with another, and describe that time frame between the first and second comings of Jesus. Now, as we read through chapter 10, keep in mind there's fundamentally two things. There's this mighty angel that's introduced in the first verse, and then there's a little book that he has in his hand, verse 2, that's elaborated on beginning at verse 8. So we'll see two different headings tonight. We'll see the mighty angel, largely speaking, up until verse 7, and then the little book, verse 8 to 11. Revelation 10, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them down. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, a stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So there's a mighty angel and there's a little book. 
Notice first a mighty angel. And the first thing that has to be here addressed is this question. Who is this angel? Perhaps I could put the question like this. Is it merely a created but exalted angel? Or else, is it Christ himself? Well, some have preferred to view him as a created angel, an exalted one, possibly Gabriel or another, who is intentionally described as Christ in order to reveal Christ. Others, given the fact that this angel is described almost in identical ways that Christ is described, especially in the first chapter, suggests that this is no created angel, but it's the angel or messenger of the covenant. And I want to suggest that most likely it's the latter of these two opinions that's most accurate to the Spirit's intention in the text. This is the older view, and it's the view of John Gill, our Baptist forefather. He said, a created angel is not intended, but the uncreated angel, the Lord Jesus Christ, seems here rather designed. And then he gives some arguments that we won't flesh out, but he says, as appears both by comparing this passage with Daniel 12, 7. Now remember, the book of Revelation has to be interpreted in light of many Old Testament texts, one of them, or books, one of them being Daniel. And if you go back and read Daniel 9-7, there's a lot of similarities between the passages. So he's saying if you were to compare this passage with Daniel 12-7, it would be evident that this is no created being. And then another reason he says, and from the power given by this angel to the two witnesses in chapter 11. Now we're going to see chapter 11 in the first half, God willing, next week. And uh, we'll see in chapter 11, these two witnesses are given authority by this very same angel. And so it's likely that by angel, mighty angel here is meant none other than Christ himself. Now Jesus Christ is on occasion, referred to as an angel. Remember the word angel just means messenger. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, I think almost every time, if not, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Because the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is worshipped, he's feared as God, he speaks as God, he's treated as God. Now he's none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God. And furthermore, the prophet spoke of the messenger of the new covenant. And that, of course, is a reference to Jesus himself. And so either this angel is described as God, which I find it personally hard to accept that view. Now, that's a possible view. And it's a view held by good men that he's merely described as Christ to manifest the glory of Christ, or else, more probably, he is Christ himself. But either way, he's described in a similar way that Christ is described, especially in chapter 1. Now that brings me then to a few things about this mighty angel, and the first of which is his description in verse 1. 
I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Notice he's clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. There's, in fact, a fourfold description of this angel. And again, like I've said, each of these four are borrowed from chapter one and other places of Revelation, which refer to Jesus. And let's go through them very quickly. He was clothed with a cloud. Now, clouds in scripture are used to signify judgment, majesty, and mobility. And brethren, all three of those fit the context. Remember, Jesus has said himself. In fact, that's taken from Daniel 12. He refers to that passage when he says that the Son of Man will come with the clouds in the day of judgment. Clouds in Scripture underscore judgment, underscore majesty, and mobility. And all of them are here true. He's clothed with a cloud. Secondly, he has a rainbow on his head. And throughout scripture, you know, the rainbow is a symbol of God's covenantal faithfulness. I saw on the internet the other day, I think it was yesterday, somebody put a picture of a full rainbow. I've never seen that. It was a complete circle. I never even thought of it, that they actually are a complete circle. It was a complete circle. Beautiful rainbow. And brother, I just thought to myself, what a tragedy in our day that that beautiful symbol is so distorted. The rainbow teaches us about God's covenantal faithfulness. Remember, it's the sign of the Noahic covenant. And fundamentally, the promise of the Noahic covenant, brethren, is this. God will never destroy the world until his son comes and saves his people. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the covenants. And we just make that Noahic covenant to be the one exception. No, it's not the one exception. God, is, God promised under the Noahic covenant not to destroy the world again with a flood because he promised to bring Jesus upon this earth and his elect have to be born and saved. And so the heart of the Noahic covenant is Jesus. And that's why this angel, I suggest to you, Christ himself, has a rainbow on his head. I can't help but think there's a connection. I don't know if it's, po- if it's true, but it's possible. Between clouds and rainbow. Because ordinarily rainbows come after the clouds. And clouds oftentimes denote God's judgment. And if that's true, brethren, here we find the one who saves us from that judgment. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. And then thirdly, his face was like the sun. This refers to his radiance, his perfect purity and glory. In fact, you might know that uh, Jesus was described like this. Uh, at his transfiguration, Matthew 17, 2. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. It's just underscoring his majesty, his infinite and exceedingly pure glory. His face is shining. Brother, that's why I have a hard time personally attributing these descriptions to a mere created angel. 
I'm finishing up this lecture. I was working on it just before I left about some of the heresies in relation to the Trinity. And one of them, of course, was the ancient heresy of Arius. And Arius basically believed that the Son was the first created being through which all of creation came into existence. Well, that, of course, is a lie. Because the Son of God is the eternally begotten Son of God. He was never created. And I want to suggest to you, brethren, that these descriptions are too exalted for any mere created being. No, this is most likely, friends, none other than our beloved Savior. And then finally, his feet was like pillars of fire. And this, of course, underscores, and it's a common, isn't it, description of God. Again, you find it back in chapter 1. And I think it underscores fundamentally his power and stability. The fact that he's unchanging in his word and ways. Now, these four descriptions, don't they, remind us of something in the Old Testament. Don't they remind us of the pillar of cloud, of fire, uh, uh, the pillar of, of cloud in the day and fire in the night? If you remember, that, of course, illustrated God's special covenantal presence among his beloved people. Remember that pillar of cloud led them and the pillar of fire guarded them and warned them at night. It sheltered them from the hot desert sun in the day as well as it, it led them and it also protected them from the cool of the desert night. And you find almost all of the descriptions tied up into that pillar, don't you? Well, I think this is probably the point here because what we're going to find out, there's ongoingly trials, tribulations, hardships, and persecutions through which God's people have to endure. They're in the wilderness, brethren. That's the point here. And in order for us to get into the promised land, we have to go through the wilderness. And I think what we find here is that there's this angel of the Lord, this mighty angel. There's Christ himself, the fulfillment of all that was shadowed in that pillar in the Old Testament. And here he's dressed in similar ways. He has feet and legs like pillars. He's garbed with clouds. His face shines like the sun, like a fire. And he has the rainbow upon his head. He's God's covenantal presence among his beloved people. All right, that's his description. That brings us secondly to verse 2 and his authority. He had a little book open in his hand. Now I want to come back to that in a minute, but just notice that it's in his hand. This book, this little book, I'm going to argue in a moment, is nothing other than the revealed will of God in the scripture. It's the Bible. Let me put it as plainly as that. The Old and New Testaments. Now remember back in chapter 5, there was a larger scroll, and that was the decrees of God. His everything that he decreed from eternity past. This is more narrow. This is that which he reveals out of his decrees. 
And so it's a little book as opposed to that large scroll of chapter 5. But nevertheless, we'll come back to that in a moment. It says that he set his right foot on the sea and left foot on the land. Children, this is a very large angel, if it were just a mere created being. Because one foot's on the sea, one foot's on the land, which simply underscores that he has all authority on earth and in heaven. Now, who was given all authority in heaven and earth? Jesus. No angel has that authority. And it, and it, and it speaks of the, um, the sea and the land because that comprises the whole earth. It's just another way of saying that this angel has authority in heaven and earth. He comes from heaven and he has dominion on earth. So he's described in the most exalted ways, this mighty angel. He has authority, all authority on earth, sea and land. Let me just say too, before I come to the third thing about the angel... One reason why some people are reluctant to say this is Christ and they would rather say it's a created angel is because of verse 6 and 7. The angel swears by him who lives forever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth, the things that are in it, the sea, etc. Well, the problem with that is that at the heart of God's covenantal faithfulness is God swearing by who? Who does God swear by? He does swear by someone in his covenantal arrangements with his people. And it's himself, brethren. He swears by himself. And so this is the God-man in the capacity of the messenger of the new covenant. The mediator between God and man. He's come down from heaven. And one foot's on the, on the sea and one foot's on the land. And then he, that means he has authority. Right? Over sea and land. And then he swears to the one who created the sea and the land. It's just the son giving his proper respect and allegiance to his father. Nothing new here, brother. And we find it all throughout the scriptures. God's son comes down to earth and is given authority over heaven and earth. And he swears to his father who created the heavens and the earth. And let me just say while I'm here, a little something about uh, the end of verse 6. That there should be delay no longer. I'm going to come back to these verses in a moment, but... Just to clarify something, that there should be time no more is how the old King James translates that. But it's not saying, and, and people falsely come to this phrase in the King James translation and suggest that eternity, that heaven will be timeless. That's not possible, brethren. Because creatures are always bound by time and will always be bound by time unless we cease being creatures. Now, let me tell you a secret. For all eternity, we'll always be creatures. There's only one who isn't bound by time, and it's the only one who isn't a creature. And that's God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, it has nothing to do with that anyways. It just simply means 
that the message, which we're coming to now in the third place with regards to the angel, his message is that there should be no delay any longer. In other words, here soon, in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh trumpet will sound. <laughs> it's really unbelievable that people can get from that text that theology, but that's for another day. All right, so his message, verse 3. And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, and he cried out seven thunders. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now these seven thundering voices are connected to, if not synonymous with, his voice. And we know from, from, from the rest of the Bible... That oftentimes God's voice is described as the roar of a lion and the thunders of heaven. And so this is a booming voice this angel has. I think it underscores the power and authority of his voice. Now, it says in verse 3 and verse 4 that John was about to write down what he heard. Okay, so the angel says something. To, the angel is going to say... The angel here says some things to him, and he's about to write them down, but he's forbidden. And thus, the question is, what was it that the angel uttered that John was forbidden to write down? And, well, the answer to that is very simple. I don't know. Nobody does. He was forbidden to write it down. And I think it simply illustrates God's secret will. The only thing that is revealed for him to know is at the end of verse 6, as I've said, and that is that the seventh trumpet will soon sound. And with the seventh trumpet, as we'll see when we get to eleven fifteen, the end of the world comes again. Remember, seven cycles. This is going to be another ending of the cycle, and then we're going to begin in chapter 12 with what? The birth of the, of the man-child, the incarnation. All right, so the point being is this. What you need to know, you know. Basically, I can put it like that. What you need to know, you know. The end is coming. It won't delay. But the rest of what you heard, you cannot write down. Now, you know that scripture sometimes speaks of God's secret will, only known to him. That includes every detail. That was everything written on the front and back of that scroll in chapter 5. And then that which is revealed. That's the little book. Brother, you really find some really just unbelievably beautiful and practical theology. Not, I want to say trapped. That's not the best uh, word or imagery. Contained within these admittedly somewhat difficult texts. And uh, you just have to go to the clearer texts that speak of these things and, and shine light into the less clear, brother, and that's a, that's a simple hermeneutical principle. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to you and to your seed, that you might do everything in the book. Now, that book there, Deuteronomy 29, 29, is the little book that we're going to see here in a moment. 
God has already decreed everything, and it's not for you and I to know. So when somebody says, I want to know, Pastor, God's will for my life, should I marry Lady A or B? Well, you have to use principles to determine if you should marry Lady A and Lady B. Because while God has already decreed or willed which woman you shall marry, that's not known to you. That's a part of those things that here we find are forbidden to be known. And so we have to govern ourselves in accordance to the little book that's sufficient for us. All right, so that brings us then to verse 8 in a little book. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Okay, now John is bidden to go and fetch the little book in the hand of the angel. Now let me uh, address the little book with the help of two questions. One, what does the little book refer to? Well, I've already told you that the little book refers to the revealed will of God as contained in Scripture. Now, again, this relates to the larger scroll back in chapter 5, because the larger scroll in chapter 5 is God's exhaustive decree. God has decreed everything that shall come to pass, which woman you marry, etc., But he hasn't revealed that to us. That's locked up in God's secret will. That which he has revealed to us is sufficient. You say, but it's a little book. I want a big book. Well, brethren, the Bible is a big enough book to answer all of your questions. The Bible is a big enough book to show us what we need in terms of getting right with God and walking with God and living with God for eternity. And I think this is why the little book is referred to as open as opposed to closed or sealed. Remember the other larger book or scroll was sealed. This one is open. Brother, just stop and think how beautiful, how privileged we are to have a Bible. We have before us God's open, revealed will for mankind. Everything we need to know is contained either directly or by inference within the pages of the Holy Bible. And so I think by little book, it simply means the scriptures. And we'll see that here in a moment, in a moment, even more clearly. Secondly, verse 10, what does it mean to eat the book? Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Notice eating the word of God produced two results. It was sweet as honey and bitter in the belly. First, scripture is sweet. Secondly, it's bitter. First, scripture is sweet. This likely refers to the sweeter parts of the scripture. Remember, David said in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet Are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth? 
And this, of course, probably refers to the promises of the gospel that are sweet to our taste. And yet there's bitter things in the book. And this refers to the harder parts of Scripture. Perhaps the revelation that we suffer, I think that's a, uh, an obvious point being because they're suffering, but also to the judgments of God upon his enemies. As we'll see, I think that's also included because of the end, the last verse of chapter 10. Now, brethren, this doesn't mean that any part of Scripture is bad. Don't, don't think, think that. Don't say, well, some parts of the Bible are sweet, some are bitter. That means some are good, some are bad. No, it's all good. It's just that some parts are sweet and other parts are bitter. But all are good, as we'll see here in a moment, for one's soul. I think by bitter it simply means it leaves. Because notice the distinction. The sweet is in the mouth and the bitter is in the belly. I think the idea here is that it leaves a wholesome troubling in the hearts and souls of those who know those bitter passages. Because we're going to see here in a moment that some of the prophets who had um, a commission from God to preach judgment felt that bitterness in their soul. All right, that brings us then to two lessons. First, Scripture must be eaten by every Christian. Secondly, ministers especially must eat all of Scripture. All right, so notice first, Scripture must be eaten by every Christian. This means we spiritually chew and digest Holy Scripture. In other words, the Scriptures become a part of us. That's what the imagery is, isn't it, of eating. It's not just putting to the lips, but it's chewing and digesting the Word of God, brethren, that brings everlasting good to our souls. Give me the little book, verse 9. And he said to me, take and eat it. Take and eat it. Think of these words of our Savior, Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Just as man physically lives off of bread, that's food, in part for the whole. So the word of God nourishes the soul, brethren. That's exactly what he's saying, isn't it? How important is food to nourish the body? Exceedingly. And just so is the word of God with regards to the soul. Thus it's not the possession of the word of God that nourishes the soul. It's eating and digesting that word that nourishes the soul. But if it, if it was just the possession of the word of God, my soul would be exceedingly fat and healthy. Because I have a lot of Bibles and I have a lot of books about the Bible. And if it was just that, if it was just possessing the word of God, 
If it was just possessing expositions of the word of God that nourished our souls, brethren, we would all be exceedingly nourished, wouldn't we? But you know what? You can have a refrigerator full of food. You can have cupboards filled with food. And yet starve for not eating it. Right? I mean, just having cupboards filled with food and a refrigerator. And we have freezers. I mean, think of it. We have a freezer upstairs filled with food. The little one with the refrigerator. We have a smaller Another refrigerator downstairs filled with food and a little refrigerator. And then we have two big freezers filled with food. We got pantries filled with food. Brother, we got a lot of food. But it's not the possession of it that nourishes the body. It's the chewing and digesting of it that nourishes the body. You have to eat the word of God. This is the point here. Because it's not just possessing the book, the little book, the Bible, that nourishes our hearts. It's digesting it. Now let me suggest three things. One, you have to digest it personally, completely, and continually. Personally. Every person must eat and digest the word of God for themselves. Nobody can eat for you. Now that's true physically, isn't it? Now I know when the baby's little and it's dependent upon its mom... There's a sense in which what she eats, he or she eats. But the little one still has to eat, right? It's not enough for the baby that the mama eat. The baby has to eat or the baby will starve, brethren. The baby has to eat. Every person has to eat. Young person tonight, you have to eat the word of God. Now that means you have to understand it. You have to believe it, and you have to cherish it in your belly. You have to believe the whole thing, the sweet as well as the bitter. You have to believe it for yourself, personally and secondly, completely. And by this I mean every Christian must eat the entirety of the word of God, not some of it. We have to eat the sweet parts, surely, but we have to eat the bitter parts. And by bitter parts... I mean those passages perhaps that tell us to mortify the deeds of the body, that tell us to deny ourselves, perhaps those passages that run contrary to our flesh, to our ease when they tell us that we have to suffer and, and love others before ourselves, place others and their needs before ourselves, and also when we have to think about the judgments of God upon the wicked. So you don't just read your Bible looking for the sweet parts, omitting the bitter parts. No, you read the whole thing, right? Because what does it say? Take and eat it. Not the sweet parts, but the whole of the little book, including the bitter parts. Again, think of uh, um, physically, if we just ate the sweeter parts of the menu. Um, and didn't eat the other ones, maybe the vegetables. And all the other different food groups that we need. Brethren, we have to eat broadly and widely if we're going to be nourished properly. Or, in the words that I'm using, we have to not only eat personally, but completely. Eat the whole plate, or the, everything on the plate. Right? That's normally what you tell your children. You tell your children to what? Just eat the bread and the butter. Or maybe they scrape off the butter off the bread and just eat that and leave the rest. No, you say you have to eat the butter and the bread and the meat and the vegetables and everything else on the plate. 
You have to eat it completely, ordinarily, if you're going to be healthy. We have to eat personally, completely, finally, continually. Brethren, it makes little difference what we've eaten last month or last week if we haven't eaten anything yesterday or today. Spiritually speaking, it matters little what we've read and digested last week, month, or year. Brother, you can't just live off of former blessings. I've tried. It doesn't work. You read a lot, you know a lot, you feel like you're full and healthy, and then you think maybe I'll just coast for the next couple months. I've eaten enough this month that I don't have to eat next month. It doesn't work that way, brother. It doesn't work that way physically, and it surely doesn't work that way spiritually. We have to eat the Word of God personally, completely, continually. Secondly, second lesson. I have it like this in my lesson, so let me just put it this way. Ministers and Scripture are closely related. I, I think I like it better the other way. Scripture must be eaten by every Christian. Scripture must be eaten by every minister. That's what I'm after here. Because remember, this passage takes place in the context of John's recommissioning. John isn't just a regular Christian, though he is a Christian. But he's also a minister. And so he's to notice verse 10. He's to eat the little book. And then verse 1, go and prophesy. In other words, before he preaches in verse 11, he has to eat in verse 10. Now, you might know that John isn't the only preacher in the Bible, in the little book, described as eating scripture. There's several Old Testament prophets, for example, who, when they are commissioned to preach, are told similar things or commanded similar things. Let me give you two examples. Jeremiah. Chapter 15, 16, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Notice he doesn't say, I took your words, and I exegeted them, and I formed them into sermons for others. Well, the preacher has to do that. He has to exegete the word. He has to form the word into sermons. He has to preach the word to others. But before he preaches it, he has to digest it. He says, I found your word and I ate it and then I went and preached it. That's exactly, by the way, what Ezekiel said or was commanded to do in chapter 3, 3 and 4. Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. And then uh, Ezekiel the prophet says, so I ate. And it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Then he said to me, that is, God said to him, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Eat it and preach it. Revelation 10.10 He ate it. And he preached it. And so my point very simply is every preacher must eat the word. 
Now let me in closing suggest that this would determine this fact that they have to eat the whole word, right? The whole word, the sweet and the bitter. This would determine what they preach. This would determine why they preach and how they preach. Notice first, this would determine what they preach. What are they to preach? But what they ate, right? They're to preach that which they ate. Go eat the word and preach it. Do I preach the sweet parts? Yes. Do I preach the bitter parts? Yes. In short, I tell the people about the wrath of God to come. And I tell them about his love in Jesus who saves us from that wrath. Secondly, it determines why they preach. Why do they go and preach? But because they've been commissioned by God and they've been commanded by God to eat his word and then proclaim it. This is why they go preach it. He tells them to go preach it, verse 11, but after he commissions him by commanding him to eat the word. Brethren, in other words, when Jeremiah ate the word, when Ezekiel ate the word, and when John here ate the word in Revelation 10, it was, a re- it was either a commissioning or a recommissioning from God which underscored their authority. They have the word of God in them. They've been given the word of God. They've been commanded to eat the word. And then they've been commanded to preach the word. But finally also. How they preach it. How they preach it. They preach it as one. Who's tasted. Of its sweetness in their mouth. And as one who felt the bitterness in their belly. And that's why Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And that's why, as we'll see, God willing, next week, the two witnesses, their message is fundamentally one of sweetness and one of bitterness. And that's what makes every preacher a preacher. Because he's preaching that which he's tasted. Well, there's a whole lot more that could be said here, brethren. But we have to leave it at that. And we have a second hymn. I think Miss uh, Hannah, I can't remember, sweetie, which two? 216. Thank you.